0: the book of John, starting off with chapter 1, what we have in what we call the Gospels are four authors, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's chronicling the life of Jesus Christ, but it's four different men, four different personalities, writing their account of what happened. Now, these four different men... Uh, you know, some of them were fishermen, some of them were tax collectors, they had different backgrounds, they had different personalities. So it is kind of odd when you think about it that they wrote about what they saw and about the life of Christ and they're all in complete agreement. We know that as we study God's word that there is no uh, dispute there. There is uh, nothing that one says that the other disagrees with. Uh, They're all in agreement. Each gospel emphasizes a different origin of Jesus as well. So Matthew shows Jesus came from Abraham through David and demonstrates that he is the Messiah, the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. Mark shows that Jesus came from Nazareth and demonstrating that Jesus is a servant. So in Matthew we have Messiah. Mark shows him as a servant. Luke shows that Jesus came from Adam so he's demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. John shows Jesus came from heaven demonstrating that Jesus is God. So we know from the scripture we looked at last Saturday if you were here, 2 Timothy 3:16 that all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 in the four Gospels, don't we? They're they're harmonious. They all work together. They're all telling the same set of events in one way or another, and they're all giving the same account. So these men were God-inspired, moved by the Holy Spirit, were used to write the Word of God. In the first three Gospels, we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're considered to be synoptic Gospels, meaning that they're similar or They see together in concept and approach. The Gospel of John doesn't exclude as many events as the other Gospels, but does include more of Jesus' teachings. So, four books written by these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four titled, if you look in your Bible, normally the page says at the beginning of the book, The Gospel According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all writing about the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first three gospels major on the, describing the events in the life of Christ. John actually emphasizes the meaning of those events. Example, we talked about it last week just briefly, all four gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. But only John records Jesus' sermon after that feeding, The bread of life teaching, it followed right after that miracle. So he explained that miracle to them in that teaching. It's been said by some that John's gospel is inexhaustible. It's shallow enough for a child to wade in, yet it's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. (laughs) I like that. Shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. Those first three Gospels focus more on what Jesus taught and did. John focuses more on who Jesus is. Now, we've talked about the Gospels, the four guys. Who's John? Who's John? He's a fisherman by trade, we know. He's also a Jew. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20, tells us that he was also the son of a guy by the name of Zebedee. Matthew 4, 21 tells us that John was also the brother of James. We know that John is the writer of this gospel. We know that he's the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. He's also the writer of the book of Revelation. So a little bit more about John. How did John come to know Jesus? Well, Jesus called John in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Here's the account of that. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets and he called to them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him now three names in there that are going to sound very familiar to us peter james and john in galatians 2 paul refers to peter james and john as the three pillars of the church the three pillars of the church and why is that we know that jesus called 12 disciples But we see in many accounts where these three men, Peter, James, and John, Jesus was very close to them. He was closer to them maybe than the other nine because he involved them in things that the other nine weren't involved in. Uh, We know they were there at the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. We know that they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he had this close relationship with Peter, James, and John. But he also, he was very close, very, very close with one. And that's John, referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John 13, 21, at the Last Supper, where Jesus predicts his betrayal, verse 23, the text says that now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And then at Jesus' crucifixion in John 19, we read, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and this disciple whom Jesus loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus entrusted John with the care of his mother. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Turn to John chapter 21. You're in John. Flip over to chapter 21. We'll start in verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Kind of an interesting dialogue that's going on. John's following behind. Peter sees him back there is asking about the betrayer. What about this man? And Jesus says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If I was Peter, I'd have been like, what? (laughs) I, I I don't follow what you're saying. Then this saying went out in verse 23, among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. He said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's the author of this book. Don't you find it interesting that John never calls himself by name, particularly, he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't know if that's humility. I, I'm not sure what that is. I, I'm not sure why he did that. But we can also be in that place where we could refer to ourselves having relationship with Christ. We're his disciples. He loves us. We're the disciples that Jesus loves as well. So this is a disciple who testifies of these things, he says. It's further evidenced by John's own words that he was this disciple that Jesus loved. So why study this book why study the book of john well john tells us in his own words if you're still in chapter 21 flip over to chapter 20. john chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. john's going to tell us why he wrote this book john chapter 20 verse 30 And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why was it written? It's written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. So... We are studying this book because John wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's written that we may believe. So John writes all of these things. His account comes from an eyewitness testimony, doesn't it? We know in our own lives as we came to the Lord, as we share our testimony of how we came to the Lord, We are eyewitnesses of that account. We can share how we came to the Lord because we were there, right? John is giving us that as well. If you turn to 1 John chapter 1, that's one of the other books that John wrote. It's right back in front of uh, Revelation and Jude. 1 John chapter 1. John writes here and gives us a little bit more of an idea of his account. So, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full so John's account here in 1st John he's saying we have heard we have seen we have looked upon our hands have handled we bear witness we declare to you all these things giving us that indication of that eyewitness account so the accounts that they write we can rest that they are true not only because they were inspired by God by the Holy Spirit but also because they were there they were eyewitnesses to all that took place John was an eyewitness of these events eyewitness of the teachings and he knew that he was loved by Jesus so the heart of John in this epistle, 1 John, is the same as we see in his gospel. Turn back to the book of John. The holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving, Christmas. And I don't know what those holidays are like for you guys, but I know for us, it's a time to eat a large meal where there's plenty of food, plenty of dessert. You eat till you're full, and then you graze the rest of the day, Right? You're eating to overfull the whole time. You pace yourself, don't you? You don't want to just gorge because then you won't be anything the rest of the day. You know, come it's pumpkin pie o'clock and you're full, you know, and you can't can't eat any pie. But if you take your time and just take it in and savor it, we're not in a hurry. We don't have to be somewhere. We're with family. We're enjoying this meal and just taking it in slowly. Now, then there are other times that. We eat in a hurry, don't we? We do the fast food thing. We're going somewhere, we got to meet somebody, we just cram it down and we move on down the road, right? Well, for the next four weeks, I promise that we'll move faster after this four weeks, (laughs) but for the next four weeks, we're going to take our time and just enjoy this smorgasbord. We're going to slowly devour. God's Word. We're going to just savor the text. We're going to digest the text, if you will. We're going to benefit from its nutritional and spiritual value. It may seem that we're moving very slowly, but we're moving thoroughly to glean the necessary food from God. We're going to focus the next four weeks on four things. You can see them on the screen Jesus is God, Jesus is the Word, Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. That's what we're going to be looking at the next four weeks. And if you've looked ahead at all, you've already seen, Pastor Jim, that's like just the first five verses. I know. That's the reason I tried to draw you in with the whole food thing, okay? (laughs) We're going to digest it slowly. We're going to really see what's being said there above and beyond just a cursory view. We're going to get into the meat of God's Word and see what it says about Jesus Christ. John 1, uh, look at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, And without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning, God. The beginning. We talked about this last week. Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. How many of you have heard that word before? Elohim. Fairly common. It's plural. It's a plural word. Elohim. The Hebrew word is plural. Why? More than one, right? A pretty simple answer. It's not singular, it's plural. So God was already there. Somebody else was there as well. We use the term the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. Something that I know we're all familiar with. But in order to grasp everything that God has for us in the book of John, John is starting out giving us a foundation on letting us know who Jesus is. In Calvary Chapel's statement of faith, we believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, that this triune God created all, upholds all, and governs all things. Now, we can back that up with some proof text. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44.8 says, Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John, the book of John that we're in, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. That's pretty straightforward, I think. Hebrews 1, Says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has seen in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know that Jesus, when he completed his work here on the earth, and he ascended into heaven, we know that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So hold your place in John, and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 48. Isaiah 48, verse 12. says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Two things right off the bat we want to take note of there. He says, I am. Remember when Moses was talking to God on the mountain and Moses said, Lord, who should I say is that who sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. We're going to see as we go through the book of John, another thing that, that confirms to us that Jesus is God is because Jesus there in the book of John has the I am statements, doesn't he? Also, we know Jesus when he was in the garden and they come to arrest him. Are you Jesus? And he said, I am. What happened? They all fell down. That's power, isn't it? But he says, I am the first and I am also the last. We see that in the book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. My right hand, we just saw a reference to that, that Jesus is the right hand of the Father. And he says here, my right hand has stretched out the heavens. Jesus was involved with the creation, wasn't he? Elohim, plural. There's Jesus. Jump down to verse 16. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit, Holy Spirit's there, have sent me. Sent who? Jesus. The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. We see the Trinity already in place in this passage. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Who is our Redeemer? Jesus Christ. He's also the Holy One of Israel. And then it says in verse 17, halfway down, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. These references to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit that we see in this text, Verse 12, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 13, my right hand. Verse 16, Lord God and his Spirit. Verse 17, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel. All references that we see repeated throughout Scripture referring to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Also we have in the account, Genesis 2.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Another plural thing there, right? I know most of us have heard this before, but it's important that we nail this this down at the beginning of the book of John and have a full understanding of the Trinity and what that's all about, that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God, all wrapped up into one. So the Trinity of God is also seen at the baptism of Jesus. So flip over to Matthew. I know we're looking through a lot of scriptures tonight, but hey, we're feeding, right? We're feeding on God's word. Matthew chapter 3, start at verse 13. This is the account of the baptism of Jesus, and we'll see what we see here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, who are our cast of characters? We know John the Baptist is there. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit's there. And God's there. God's speaking from heaven. So the Trinity, the Godhead, existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are here at the baptism of Jesus. Well, probably one of the best verses in the Bible to further confirm the doctrine of the Trinity, get this one, because this is real important, is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 tells it very plainly, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So if you got someone that's trying to refute the Trinity, there's a good verse for you to to take them to, right? For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. What's the one? God, right? The Godhead. Now, Over time, there are those who have tried to explain the doctrine of the Trinity in in plain English or in simplicity, simple illustrations. Probably all heard some of these. The egg illustration, right? It fails because it talks about the shell, the white, and the yolk are parts of the egg, but they're not the egg in and of themselves, are they? The apple illustration falls short as well because it talks about the skin, the flesh, and the seeds are part of the apple, but they're not the apple itself. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not parts of God. Each of them is God. We need to remember that. When we're trying to use those little things to explain, they fall short of really what's going on here because they are. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. They're not parts of God. Then there's the water illustration. Maybe some of you have heard it. That liquid vapor and ice are forms of water. Well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not forms of God. They are God. So you can see with some of those things start to... And I know what we've tried to do. We tried in our finite minds to come up with some description that we can grab a hold of. I even shared with some of the guys that I was doing discipleship with over in Greeley using myself which I mean obviously falls way short as well but you think of Jim here's Jim he is a father he is a son and he's also a pastor so father son the Holy Spirit is the worker in all of that right he's got the occupation of working things out in our lives so you could say Jim is a father and a son and a pastor. Still falls way short, right? I mean, all of those added up don't make me God. And aren't we glad? I mean, (laughs) that would be a scary thought to say the least. So an infinite God cannot be fully described by a finite illustration. I think we would all agree. Uh, Years ago, I heard a little boy in Sunday school class said, well, God's like a cherry pie. You know, you cut it in three pieces, you got three pieces, but it's all still cherry pie. Well, that would probably work with any pie, I guess, but it still falls way short of explaining this. So maybe instead of focusing on trying to figure out the Trinity, we should focus on the fact that God's greatness and he's infinitely higher in nature than anything that we can think of on our own, right? He's just, if we could figure him out, he wouldn't be God. Romans 11 uh, says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Last week we were talking, we had uh, actually a group of people about this same size and we had about 30 people from Greeley that came over to to support uh, our first service. And we kept saying, oh, it was immeasurably more than we could ask or think. <laughs> you know, I love that verse. I love that, that text because it really does capture how we should view God. He's just immeasurably more than we can ask or think, isn't he? But yet we know in our own lives, as he's worked that out in our lives, has grown us, has allowed us to experience certain things in our Christian walk, learn certain things from his word, we see some growth in our lives. And we just know that it's, oh, the love of God, it's immeasurably more than we could ask or think. And I just think that's, well, I think it's a better description than an apple or an egg, you know, or water. You know, (laughs) it's just better. Text after text throughout the scripture taken in context prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Think about this. God is a God of diversity and a God of unity. How many of you have seen the bumper stickers, celebrate diversity? Okay, we've probably all seen those. I don't know if there's one out there that celebrate unity, but in our culture, that doesn't work, does it? Diversity and unity are kind of at two in, you know, ends of the spectrum. They don't, they don't come together because those would want to claim diversity want to be different and don't want to be unified with another group over here. Diversity, God is a God of diversity and a God of unity. You've seen the commercial uh, and is better than or, right? (laughs) God's not a God of diversity or a God of unity. He's a God of diversity and a God of unity and is better. His nature possesses a plurality that is diverse but it's also unified in solidarity. It's it's hard for us to fathom this concept because we automatically assume diversity is something that works against unity. But in God, there's something that prevents this from happening, harmony. Harmony. Harmony is defined by Webster as a combination of parts into a pleasing or orderly whole. It doesn't imply an absence of activity but a total lack of friction or dissension. That's when we see when it comes to God. Even though there are three separate and distinct persons called the Trinity we are active, that, are, that are actively operating, they never clash or conflict with each other, do they? They're always in complete agreement. They're all working in harmony together, diversity and unity. When John wrote this particular gospel, heresy was already present within the church. There was a group called the Gnostics. Maintaining that the body is evil and only the spirit is good, the Gnostics insisted that if Jesus was God, he couldn't have had a body. And also, according to the Gnostics, when Jesus walked, he left no footprints. Well, I mean, that would just blow out the whole footprints in the sand poem altogether, wouldn't it? We'd just have to throw all those away. When he ate, he didn't really swallow his food. He appeared as a person, but he actually had no physical body. That's what the Gnostics believed. But what does John say to this? John says, we have heard him with our ears, we have seen him with our eyes, and we have touched him with our hands. John's refuting that right off the bat. Jesus "Jesus had a body, said John. He is God. He became man. And if Jesus did indeed have a body, argued the Gnostics, he is not God, but rather a an emanation from God, an extension of God. Gnostics were a crazy group. but We've got those crazy groups today as well. But wait a minute. Counter John in the first verse of his gospel, there are three proofs that Jesus himself is God. In the beginning was the word. We read that. Whenever the beginning was, wherever it was, whatever it might have been, Jesus, the word, was already there. He had no beginning and he had no end. He is eternally God. And the Word was with God. Jesus, the Word, was with God, equal to the Father and the Spirit. Well, I thought there was only one God, you say. There is. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But the word one is a cod, which refers to a compound unity like one people or one cluster of grapes. I look down at that word, I practice that a lot, just for you guys, ichad, because I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it or not, but it sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of got that ichad. It's kind of like lachayim, or, you know, one of those words. So God is a compound unity, a triunity, if you will. And the Word was God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in his very essence, Jesus is God. The Gnostics denied this and their heresy is still alive and well today. Every cult that we have today stems from Gnosticism for every cult denies that Jesus Christ is God. They say that the Son of God is not equal with God. Rather, they maintain he is merely the offspring of God. They declare Jesus is a God. They've decided that although Jesus is the Son of God, He is not equal to God. So what do we say to these present-day Gnostics when this comes up? Because we all believe in the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that there's biblical evidence that Jesus is God. How do we turn them from what they believe? How do we convince them that Jesus is God? Turn to the book of Revelation... Revelation chapter 21, to start with, Revelation 21, verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So if you ask a modern day cultist, who is the one who gives the water of the fountain of life? Who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end? They'll say, it's God. They would be correct. It's God. So then have them turn the page to Revelation 22, verse 12 and 13. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And ask the cultist, who's going to return? Who will he say? Jesus. It's the right answer. But now he's got a problem. Because he says Jesus is not God, yet he has two Alphas and two Omegas, two Firsts and two Lasts. The only logical conclusion with those two verses is that Jesus is God. Now, they still might not buy what you're saying. But here's two proof texts to lead them to, to show them and ask them those questions. Pray. God would open their eyes and open their hearts to what he wants to show them in his word. The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ is essential and it's non-negotiable. But the two most attacked verses in scripture by these cultists are Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth because they want to make that singular. And John 1-1 which we're looking at tonight in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The cultists want to say regarding this verse that Jesus is the son of God Jesus is a prophet of God but Jesus is not God. So this is a lot to take in, isn't it? This whole subject of the Trinity It's, it's, it's heavy. Again, I know that A lot of these things are just reminders for us or just confirmations for us of what we already know from God's Word, but hopefully they've established us in what we're going to be getting into as we move on through the book of John. Amen?